Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. We are continuing our eight-week horror celebration with a discussion of Candyman. We are going to discuss both the 1992 version and the most recent version directed by Nia DaCosta. And as you've heard me before, heard me say before, it is very important to always remember that that is directed by Nia DaCosta since sadly people just like to think of it as Jordan Peele's film. So I just think it's very important to always stress that it's directed by Nia DaCosta. But before I have my panelists introduce themselves and tell me what they're into right now, just a quick housekeeping note. We are, of course, taking Patreon subscribers now. So we do have a Patreon account. So for general admission, silver pass, gold pass, you get all sorts of things like bonus episodes. We're going to be recording a Lucifer bonus episode soon. So that'll be out because that has reclaimed its position as the most popular episode we've ever recorded, the very first Lucifer one, and it keeps climbing. It's it it's in a battle with um, Glee and American Horror Story and American Crime Story and Buffy. Those are all battling it out, but Lucifer is definitely winning, so I thought it would be a good idea to do a bonus talking about the final season. So that should be a lot of fun. Okay, so I'm going to have my panelists introduce themselves and tell me one thing they're into right now. Carla, what are you into right now? Well, I just finished my rewatch of Superstore. So, you know, giving myself a pause because I was, again, just completely beaten in the heart with it ending, even though it already ended and I watched it then. But <laughs> so right now I'm, I'm um, gearing up to rewatch for the millionth time and Night at the Roxbury. Because I find that it's like a really good palate cleanser between stuff that I've that I've kind of, you know, fallen in love with that has left me with this emotional scarring. And then I can just count on, on Steve and Doug Butabi to get me through it. You have not mentioned a night at the Roxbury on this podcast in forever. I know, so I know, because it, it became all about Eurovision for the longest time, which is still up there for me. But, you know, there's always room for a night at the Roxbury in my heart. Always. Always, always and forever. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and Sasha? Not going to lie. I have been so busy. I haven't turned on the TV in weeks. That's really, really bad. So the only things or that really, I... really, really good. Well, both. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah, it's been really, really good because it's like, oh, um, yeah. So I haven't, I haven't been watching anything. I did, however, just buy the new Fast and the Furious movie number nine. Um, because if you don't know, I will watch all of those at any given moment in any sequence. I don't care. I love the Fast and the Furious movies. I know people think they're terrible and ridiculous, and that's part of the reason I love them. So my plan is... Quality entertainment. They're the best. Oh, my God. They're so fantastic. Like, launching yourself off of a car and midair snatching somebody (laughs) else out of the air and then landing on a car and sticking the landing and nobody gets hurt? These people are are performing magic tricks for us. (laughs) How, How are people not more appreciative of that? Carla, I'm so glad that you get me in my soul. I'm so glad. Um, yeah, I'm so my plan is Tuesday to watch yeah. the Fast and the Furious number nine. I haven't watched a single Fast and the Furious <gasps> movie ever. I do have this on our list of things to talk about at some point because they are such a big deal and because I know how much you love it. And apparently Carla does too. Does Do you love these movies too, Susie? Oh yeah, I find it. It's very much. This is sound really weird, but it's very much like Cirque du Zavroom. Cirque du Vroom. Cirque du Vroom. Say that again. Cirque du Zavroom. <laughs> very That's that. it. Nailed it. This is why I love you, Susie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like with me with Mission Impossible movies. Like, I love Mission Impossible movies. I will watch every single one. I think every single one is amazing. I just, I love those. So we do have those kind of movies, you know, everybody does. So someday I will watch them when we cover them on the podcast. <laughs> will be when I will. So Susie, what are you into right now? All right. So like at the beginning of September, my brain, like it, it goes through these stages of where I like hyper, kind of like hyper focus on either a series, movie, or types of songs. And I can do this for like months at a time without getting tired of the material that I'm consuming. So since the beginning of September, I, every time I listen to music, I default go to like the Merkins horror parody songs. (laughs) The ones like Careless Sister, Call Me Sydney, Slash Street Boys, (laughs) Slash Street Back, all of the (laughs) Sawing You Apart, all of those. It's just been like constant playlist playing of them each time I listen each time I need to listen to music that's my go-to and I highly recommend for people to listen to them because it's a really fun it's a really fun listen it's a jam awesome awesome yeah I've I've, I well I think I've heard the slash street because is that the one that's the video do they have the video there too because I know I shared that when we did the bed wed behead with the horror hunks episode I sure shared that video with Jason and Michael and Freddie. Yeah. And I think it's that's what best. I think that's what made Meg decide who she was gonna marry was the video. I mean, she would probably agree. <laughs> yeah, they're all like all the parody songs have like really fun music videos attached to them. One of my favorites to belt in the car is Careless Sister, which is a Michael Myers parody of Careless Whisper. <laughs> that's By funny. Michael Myers. That's funny. I'll have to. I'll have to definitely keep an eye out for that. And this is Aaron. And well, if people were following along on Thursday night, Susie sadly was not there to help me in my morning. 
we tweeted out the final episode of the first half of American Horror Story double feature. And what this meant was I had to say goodbye to Finn Whitrock's beautiful, beautiful black hair and it being in my life weekly. It was, it was very, I was very heartbroken. I was very sad. I had Jen there to comfort me and understand and to make a beautiful picture collage for me that wasn't just him. But so what did I decide to do? I have all this stuff I have to watch. So I decided I can't, I can't live without seeing this man. So I am going to go try and watch Ratchet again because I tried to watch that when it was first <laughs> on. I made it just a few episodes in. I went and I finished it. I don't think it's good. I just <laughs> it's too much like an American Horror Story season. But I really enjoyed watching Finn Whitrock in it. I, I really enjoyed those scenes where he was taking a shower. I really enjoyed that scene. <laughs> but no, I overall, I no, I thought he did a really good job. And I... And apparently, I did not know this, Ryan Murphy wants to make this a four-season-long thing. Each season, I guess she's going to be battling a different male foe until the last season is going to be supposed to coincide with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest timeline. I do not like this idea. I hate this idea. But I will watch it. So I, I, I just want to say, Ryan Murphy, I don't know what you have done to me in my life. But I don't appreciate it <laughs> because I can't get rid of you. So I'm I'm into I'm into Finn Whitrock. That's all I'll say. I, I mean, Jen and I are going to be doing a live tweet sometime next week. We are going to watch this movie called The Long Weekend or something. I subscribed to Stars again just so I could watch this movie. And there's all these gifs on it, so that's why I want to watch it that are amazing and beautiful. So we'll announce when we're going to live tweet that. So that should be a lot of fun or really annoying. <laughs> yes, Carla. I feel like Carla wants well, no, to. No, I'm, I'm just like, like, why not both? It, yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's get into the movies we are discussing. I'm hesitating saying the name too many times, as you will see. <laughs> so we're going to. I feel like, like it kind of counts as a mirror <laughs> if you can see yourself. And you can see yourself as we're recording this. Therefore, I am bowing out of saying it. Thank you. Yes. I yes. Just in case. How about if we just call him like the sea dude? <laughs> the sea dude. Or, <laughs> or the man. sweet dude. Susie the and I said the same thing. Yeah, the man of honey. We'll call him the man of honey. So yeah, we're going to get I into mean, talk. I'm young and foolish. I'll take one for the team. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because you might. No. No, no, no. Don't do it, Susie, please. So it's not <laughs> we're going to be talking about the man of honey. Um, and we're going to talk about the first one first. And just a wording, we're spoiling both of these. So if you've only seen the original you know, and you don't want to be spoiled, you'll want to stop listening after we talk about the original. So let's talk about the first one uh, that, of course, starred Virginia Matson, uh, was the main, main star in this. This is adapted, if you don't know, from um, a Clive Barker short, which we mentioned Clive Barker a lot on our previous episode, Queer Horror. Um, and so this is adapted from his short story that now all of a sudden I'm forgetting the name, which I should have written down. But anyway, it is adapted from that. Um, and this film, the original film, takes place in Cabrini Green. And, you know, this film, both versions are have a lot to say about race. 
they both handle it very differently. And I think that's because of a lot of that has to do with who's behind the camera. Uh, but I want to know, Carla, what do you think the film is trying to say about race? I think, you know, <sighs> this just has that same feeling of any time that liberal whites gather to talk about any issues outside of their lane and they end up coming up with these ideas that they think are so great that it's like we're being good allies we're being good white people look at us being super liberal and super awesome but then they end up doing stuff like putting police in schools so it has like that same kind of feel where you know they're trying to to say that helen by braving her way into cabrini green to tell the, the story of of he who shall not be named but is covered in bees and it's not castiel <laughs> <laughs> that, that she's doing the black people who live in cabrini green some kind of favor that she is um bestowing her white gaze on them and therefore they should be glad to share this information with her. And you see that throughout, you know, when she's talking to the custodian, to the custodial staff at the university and um, they're talking to her about this thing that is terrifying to them and that is very real to them. And she's kind of taking it as like this, ho, 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 this is so funny that people actually believe in this kind of thing. And she goes to to Cabrini Green with her best friend Bernadette, who is black. And she's the one being brave for confronting all of these scary black people who like the, the place. And I mean, Cabrini Green, from um, everything that you read about it, was, you know, uh, there was a lot of crime in the area. There was a lot, there wasn't a lot of, of real oversight on it, you know, either structurally or in any other way. And when it came to crime, this is one of those areas where somebody would call the police and nobody would come. Um, and that's part of what we hear with the, the story of, of, of Ruthie who called the police because, you know, somebody broke into her house and just nobody showed up because they didn't believe her and all of this stuff. And finally they showed up and she's like splattered everywhere. But it's this brave white woman who is leading the charge to uncover the truths of Cabrini Green and how through this story of this boogeyman, we are discovering the heart of the quote unquote ghetto and why these tales are, so you know, why this urban legend has taken on this form and all of that. So again, you know, it, it's very white gazy and that starts from the fact that, you know, the story is adapted from a book written by a white person. It's directed by a white person. It stars primarily white people. Well, no, it, it's it's Helen. And then you have the dude with the coat and the hook in the hand who is not Captain Hook. The whole <laughs> other dude with the hook. Um, <laughs> he's going to have a lot of names. <laughs> a lot of names that are not the name of the film yeah. put it that way but everything is from her perspective and everything is is about her and you know 
the thing for me is that even with all of that, I think that, that there are some some really good things uncovered in the film about the nature of, of ghettoizing an area, an area where she's, you know, she's in her apartment and she's showing how her apartment is built exactly the same way as, as the apartments of Cabrini Green. Like everything about them, it's just like carbon copy of that and how those buildings are cut off by highways and all of this stuff. And there are all of these artificial borders that keep the the residents of Cabrini Green in there while everybody else who is usually white can come and go as they please. So it makes it these really astute observations, but then it goes in and ruins everything by, you know, it, it's a very compelling backstory to the whole myth of tall dude, deep voice. And that in and of itself is fascinating. But the way that the movie tells it, the, the, you don't have any hook to end up really having sympathy for him. Because even though you get this backstory of, you know, this was somebody who um, was a slave and then well, he was enslaved and then his his family managed to accumulate some wealth and he managed to make a career for himself as an artist. And then it, it just, as as so many cases in which young black men end up getting lynched he falls in love with a white woman and you know that that just can't happen so his father has him taken care of so to speak and the way that the people do that is so brutal and so awful that his spirit comes back as this vengeful vengeful spirit but aside from that story you can't really end up having any real sympathy for the dude because he's just out there murdering innocent people. Like what was the point in murdering Ruthie Ann McCoy? You know, what sort of sympathetic angle um, is gained from that? Why is it um, like when you talk about the, the people that he killed, but then apparently set up, Helen to take the fall for it, which makes zero sense. How does that work? And and why why do they make it so hard for us to empathize, empathize with the spirit who has been so horribly wronged? So it, it ends up just turning everything back on him as opposed to white culpability. It ends up exculpating white people as like, well, you know, we tried our best. We sent we sent our best white lady to get the story, and you know, he ended up traumatizing her. So that's all we can do, and that that just reflects a reality from then to now, and way back in the past, and probably more in the future. That it's seen as necessary necessary for white people to give black people the 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 gift of their of their gaze and their um, their help to get to get black people out of the, of, out of a bad situation, but then end up taking all the credit and all the glory, and it just perpetuates this cycle of of anti blackness. So it, it just it, I feel like it really tried <laughs> again in in the the best way that a coffee shop full of of white people talking about black issues is going to manage. <laughs> Yeah, Sasha. Uh, as a white 
woman, I'm going to go ahead and say Carla nailed it and I'm going to shut my damn mouth. <laughs> oh, I love you, Sasha. <laughs> Susie. Yeah, I don't think there's much that I can add. Because, <laughs> I mean, pretty you know, Carla pretty much um, kind of hit every point very succinctly that it is it's kind of the story of this woman who is she treats it as a very kind of kind of almost like a sensationalized thing or like a little adventure when she goes oh let me just go to the ghetto and hear all these fun urban legends it's gonna be a good time and it's even kind of shown in the movie that she's like so secure almost in her whiteness and untouchability as a white person because when she gets there um some of the kind of quote-unquote gang members they they yell out hey the popo's here everyone everyone get out or everyone watch out and she tells i believe she tells her friend oh they think we're the police so we'll be fine so let's just do what we came here to do and then we'll and she does all when she's kind of exploring the area she does all the like kind of things a white i expect a white person to do kind of going into where she shouldn't and just having no care for her general surroundings and just treating kind of yeah like treating everything as like a fun little adventure and how she doesn't take into account the importance of what the legend of the sugar hook man has to that community because is when she meets this kid of from that neighborhood and she catches the quote unquote real candy cane man. <laughs> she she <laughs> when she gets beat up by this candy cane man and then she she like testifies and says, Oh, that was that was the honey guy. That was him that he was the one that attacked me. And then she tells the kid, Hey, so that story wasn't real you're fine. You're going to be safe now. There's nothing to worry about. And for her, that's a very easy thing to say because as kind of as far as she knows her business in kind of that area is done. And, and then like candy, candy hombre comes to her. <laughs> nice and, catch. <laughs> El hombre de los dulces. I know. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> He he comes to her and says, "You've ruined my congregation's belief in me. Now, now you're now I must take revenge." And and yeah, because to her it was just an urban legend, something that didn't really matter. It was just for a paper, but to that community, that story and what happened to him that means something. And she just completely kind of disregards that. And oh my gosh, I almost said the c word. Not that word, the other one. People know, people know. People know. Um, yeah. Um, that's why I kind of really like the difference between this one and the new current Candyman where it treats it a little bit more. That's two times. Two times. Someone keep track. I'm keeping track. Before I grab myself in the foot. Susie, I'm going to miss you so much. You know, <laughs> I'm going to miss everyone. So glad that we got to celebrate your birthday with you before you go off on a hook. This isn't the way that we wanted you to hook up. I know, right? Neither did I. Yeah. Where's the bad drum? I know. Yeah, everyone will be a buzz about my death. 
that's good. <laughs> if I disappear in the coming days, just be like, oh, that wasn't very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All the puns. <laughs> yeah, so pretty much this kind of is. Um, so to to recap what Carla said about the Tony Todd man is <laughs> very well put. Yeah, I was like, we haven't mentioned Tony Todd yet. Uh, yeah, we have to mention Tony Todd because he's he's amazing, 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 amazing man who's an amazing actor who, you know, he's he's a theatrically trained actor and he just one of those that happened to find his way into horror. And now he's like a horror legend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have much to add either. I think, you know, a lot of it is you're watching this white woman. It's almost like she's going and she's watching people like, like, it's almost like they're on display for her. And she's like, doesn't view the people there as human beings. And even her friend is always like trying to point stuff out to her and she just completely ignores her. And I mean, she goes and walks around this place like she owns it and, you know, taking pictures and going and exploring and, you know, like with no care in the world because it is that, that white lens and the white privilege. And this is the same kind of person that would basically, that would say, you know, the line from get out, I would have voted for Obama for a third time. This is the same person that would be doing that. And then at the same time, help with gentrification all while saying it was a good thing. So, you know, it's very much a, white liberal classic white liberal one of my thoughts now as you're saying this is that you know she's so deep in her privilege that she doesn't even realize all of the times that she's stepping over boundaries yeah and the, the thing with not just the world of the movie but the world in general is that all of these arbitrary boundaries exist for people who don't fall under under the cis white hetero christian male umbrella and you know she she's a white woman so even with the you know because they do point out instances of misogyny in the film which you know great and everything but she still has the privilege to break boundaries that other people don't have the ability to to break because it's not like somebody from Cabrini Green can go to her building and just trips around doing whatever the hell they mm -hmm. want, breaking into vacant apartments and, you know, just talking to the residents all willy-nilly. And the fact that she can sit there with Jake and kind of goad him into telling her more about the story and to guiding her around the building and all these things and also it was really creepy that that she's like that she's talking to this little boy and having him show her around at all but also that that she she does like that that creepy thing of, of like the, the manipulative like you know are you too scared to help me you know are you too scared and he's a little kid he's not a little kid that you even know just stay yeah. away from him he's clearly uncomfortable talking to you but this is part of of the of the privilege that she has that she's so completely unaware of. And and I think also that with, with Bernadette, it just happens to be that she's a black actress. It's, I, I don't really, it's not really a, a character that that race was given any thought to it. In fact, 
originally somebody else was supposed to play Helen and what's her name? Uh, Virginia Madsen. Virginia Madsen. Yes. Thank you. Virginia Madsen was cast to play Bernadette. And then the actress who was playing Helen dropped out and then she got bumped up to play Helen. And then, um, yeah, she stepped in, into the role of, of Bernadette. So, you know, like, yay for casting Casey lemons. Oh, thank you. Casey lemons stepped into the, into the role of Bernadette and, you know, like yay for casting outside of the, the white, pink, beige spectrum, but there was no going back to the, to looking at the character and saying, well, you know, now that we have a black actor, a black actress portraying her, what can that perspective bring to the role? None of that. It's just like, let's give her the white lady, lady lines. And she's just the, the, the scared friend. Totally cool. And that's it. And I think it's also very... Because Tony Todd had a lot of say in the characterization of Hooky Hand, Sweetie Pie. Hooky with Hand, the Sweetie Pie. <laughs> so so he, he got to have a lot of... Uh, um, like a good amount of say in the character and he's the one actually who developed the 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 backstory of of the the enslaved person and throughout this movie like you don't even you, you hear the story but you don't even know the dude's name right yeah. so it's like <laughs> you know like if, if you're trying to make this this film say so much about something that you think you're saying so much about but you're relegating the main dude to being a supporting character in his own movie. You don't have that with Freddy Krueger. You don't have that with Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, any of these other big icons of, of slasher cinema, they get to be front and center. And what about Mr. Takes the thing? Sugar pie, honey bunch. Sugar pie, honey hook. <laughs> He's gonna unzip you. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Can, I just want to jump in because Carla, a couple things you said kind of triggered. So the whole the the white women not being afraid of anything. Are any of you on TikTok or any listeners who are on TikTok? Have you stumbled across the guy whose whole shtick is white women ain't scared of shit? No. And so he, like, he'll show pictures. There'll be, like, an image of two ferocious-looking pit bulls, right? And he'll be like, would you pet them for a million dollars? And he'll be like, cue the white women. And then the next splice will be, like, some white girl with the two pit bulls dressed in, like, footy pajamas, sipping their little pup cups. Or, you know, there was another one where there's – all you can hear is the voice, it's like, can somebody tell me what kind of shark this is? And there's like this giant shark coming at the boat and it comes up out of the water. He's like, they don't even have to show their faces anymore. You know, they're white. White women ain't scared of shit. You need to get them in your phone. There's going to be a mandate by November 1st. You have to have at least five white women in your phone because they ain't scared of shit. They will take care of business. So the whole like, just the way she walked through everything was that white woman ain't scared of shit attitude that this guy on TikTok talks about and it just it cracked me up because you had mentioned it and i was like oh squirrel brain you know that, that just totally tracks though it totally <laughs> tracks 
It does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I want to, we've kind of segued into it, mentioned it a little tiny, tiny bit, but with the backstory for Sweetums, <laughs> it's, we're going to have to make a poll and just everybody can decide which one is the best name, alternate name, um, is, you know, with the backstory, the, the reason he was lynched and killed was because of his relationship with a white woman and throughout history throughout time white women have used their whiteness and their white power and their white tears to murder black men it's just it's happened a lot i mean we've talked about it on other episodes we talked about why it was that when oj wasn't convicted why that was so powerful not because people cared about oj but because of the fact that, you know, this was a black man who was on trial for killing a white woman and you would never see that that would be, they would never normally get off because it's a white one. So I want to talk about that if because I think especially with what you're saying, Carla, with the fact that Tony Todd came up with all of this. So this isn't necessarily or helped come up with all this, that this isn't necessarily even what they wanted to say. But the film tries to talk about it, about white women and their history of causing pain and death for black men. I think it just barely scratches that surface. But do you think it does anything well in that area of, of what it's trying to say? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, not at all. And, you know, the reason for that is because everybody behind the scenes is so white that they are completely not seeing that privilege at all they're not seeing all of the harm that is historical and so real because you know e even to this day you know we, we had last year that 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 woman in the park who was telling this black mm -hmm. man i'm going to call the police and i'm going to tell them that you're doing something to me even as she's being recorded because again not scared of anything, not scared of the fact that she's being recorded. She couldn't care less because she knows that she has this power that she can, you know, pull forth in any moment. And the fact that it could have ended up very, very poorly for the man holding the the, the camera phone doesn't phase her. Doesn't phase her. And in looking at this with with Helen in this story, and all of these people who helped create the story and bring it to life. Um, it's just very telling to me that there wasn't a thought of like, okay, well, we're quote unquote exposing this harm, but we're also perpetuating it by having Helen be the, the, the victor, the martyr, the, the main person of the story. And I feel like it would have been a lot more effective if they actually cared about making this about anti-racism, if they, if they cared about exposing the role of white women and the harm that that uh, that they bring about to black men on a continuous level, then I think that it would have been more effective if, had, if in the end it had turned out that Sugarhook was just a myth and everything was in Helen's head and that she was the real murderer and that she was just deluded by her fears of bad black men. And it's just her projecting those fears and stereotypes 
of black people onto a boogeyman to excuse her own murders. So it would have been, I think, much more powerful for her, for her to have internalized that. And then uh, because after the the scene in the the bathroom where she gets beaten up by pseudo hookie Sugar McGee. Plum fairy. Yes. <laughs> I think after that is would have it would have been a great time to really dive into that, and they kind of do, and that that's when he appears to her, and that's when he says those iconic things about now I must spill the blood of innocence because you've taken away my congregation, and then you because you you go straight from there to she's waking up in in Anne Marie's apartment covered in blood. You just see the the dog's head, the baby's gone, and then you see all of these these kills where she's she's blacked out and she just comes to as the horror has already been committed just you know imagine the power of the statement that it would have made if in the end like it had just been like no we we, we've seen you do this like this is you actually doing it instead of this imagined do that you keep talking about and then at the same time like there was no good way for them to have really done this because at the same time then that takes away that um that outlet for the black people living in cabrini green because they were able to kind of project all of these frustrations and all of this stuff onto this one mythical being and then that gets taken away by this white woman so either way you slice it it's like she just there, there could have been other ways i think to really approach this film that would have made it better and also not have centered her, which is really what it is that it comes down to when it comes to um, white women uh, using their their very real power to harm black men. Mm-hmm. Sasha, do you have anything to add on to that? She's like, no. <laughs> Susie, do you have anything to add on to that? No, <laughs> because what you're saying is 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 great and wonderful. So, yeah, I, I there's nothing much else that I can add on to that either, because I do agree with, um, with everything you're saying there. Um, but the last thing for the for this movie, because and I, I already know the answer to this because we've already pretty much talked about this. But this movie is centered through the white gaze and it is all about this woman who. In the end, Helen becomes the new, the new sweet tooth man. She becomes, she becomes the new one. And Helen, like mentioned in a video that, that Carla shared, is not a very scary name <laughs> to be saying in the mirror. <laughs> Doesn't have that same power, that same hook, <laughs> so to speak. So that doesn't work as well. But I do like that idea that if this had been a story all about she was concocting this other person to i don't know assuage her own guilt for what she was doing and then also going back to history history to the history of women white women using black men and um you know convicting them and helping to convict them and helping to murder them and and that that would have been a really interesting take but that's not what happens at all um it's more he wants her to be her his victim, but also be his accomplice. And he is almost, it's almost, and they don't go deep into it in the movie, I will say, but it's almost like he, she's supposed to be the replacement for the woman that he was in love with um, that led to him being lynched, 
which would have been an interesting thing, I think, somewhat to explore more. But the film, like you said, Carla, doesn't want to center him at all. It, it's all about her. So I already know, I think, the answer to this question. But was it a good idea <laughs> to center center Helen? Helen. <laughs> well, I think maybe we shouldn't be saying her name too many times either. Like, now I'm concerned. I've said but it now I'm like, like wait. <laughs> Like, does it have less power because there's so many Helens around? Like, there's a Saint Helen, and there's not really a Saint dude with a hook who distributes candy. You know, like, maybe that's where we get saved. I don't know. But to answer your question, <laughs> to get back to the point, um, no, it, it, it doesn't work to center her. It detracts from from the the the, the main dude. I mean, like, it, it's really a a testament to Tony Todd that this movie is as compelling as it is because he doesn't get a ton of screen time, but what he the, the screen time that he does get just really sucks you in. I mean, this movie, I watched it when it came out with my family, and I I, I really don't think I've watched it since then. Mm-hmm. It has just lived in my mind since 1992. As a terrifying, fantastic film. And in my mind, as I was rewatching it, I could very distinctly remember all of these things happening in the movie. And like, you know, how often do you have that experience that a movie that is 29 years old, you can you can watch it and you're like, I remember I remember the scene so clearly. I remember his voice so clearly. So yeah, it's absolutely a testament to to him because frankly, like I couldn't really remember what she looked like, didn't remember who played her. And I, I don't know, it was just like so ineffective in, if you're looking for it to tell you something about race, it's very ineffective because of the centering of her. However, the film is still entertaining as hell. Mm-hmm. Like I, I still stand by my belief that it is one of my favorite horror movies ever it gives you the, the chills that you want to have from a slasher film and it still gives you that 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 feeling of of just like oh my god like, i mean the fact that okay these are four grown women here sitting here recording and we won't even say <laughs> the dude's name it's true okay like that that tells you the power of the film as a whole and its entertainment mm-hmm. value and it's just our fascination with it and again, like that—that that has more to do with Tony Todd than with anything else in the film. Yeah. So, like, they, I feel like really they got lucky. You know, it, it's not a matter of of uh, of them doing such a good job as it is as uh, as it is of them getting lucky and having such a compelling and important actor taking on this role. And I am so glad that they did not cast Eddie Murphy. I know. I was just. It was up that, for the role. Been... Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I could not see Eddie Murphy in this role at all. <laughs> no. No. It would have been a very different Murphy? movie. Yes. yes. No, that would No, been... like, this movie needed Tony Todd, and this movie is lucky as hell that they got him. Man, yeah, yeah. I I agree completely. So, Sasha, do you have anything you want to add on there about the white gaze, or is your dog taking <laughs> over? 
he's losing his mind. I don't know what his problem is, so I will talk super fast. The only notes I made about her were she's a messy mess. And I totally agree that I don't remember when I watched it again, I was like, I don't remember this movie. All I remember is Tony Todd and being terrified of him. I didn't remember that it was grad students. I didn't remember that they were researching urban legends. I didn't remember that she was in it. I remember the the mouth on the wall, like that mural, the mouth that she goes through. And I remembered him. That's all I remembered from the movie. So, but my note about her is she's a messy mess. <laughs> That's a perfect note about her because it's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No lies. <laughs> it's completely true. So Susie. Yeah. Before I ever um, uh, watched Confectionary Man, I only <laughs> ever knew of, of Tony Todd's, um, like he he was the character that I was so constantly about everyone and you told me they said oh his portrayal as the saccharine killer is really good and you you have to watch it and, and it'll stick with you and and one day I said okay I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a look and I saw it and yes Helen is very male sapien very much so <laughs> but and but his performance it it really shines the what he brings to the role and how he how he makes this character come to life and and it really it, it does scare you because even like Carla said we all three of us all four of us are very terrified to say the real name of, of b-boy <laughs> so, so we constantly try to find ways to like circumvent saying the dreaded c name mm-hmm. lest we incur his wrath the one th- the one issue I always have with the movie though is like all the performance is very great and, and and very interesting, especially when you learn some of the behind the scenes of how they did certain things and brought stuff to to fruition. Is it you can tell very much it is a very white gaze film in the fact that Candyman. Oh man, that's three. <laughs> I'm going to meet a very sticky end. <laughs> oh, Susie. I'm going to be That's in a sticky says. situation. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> that was great. That's what she said. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. You can tell it's very kind of weight gazing in, this, in the way that the glucose gentleman, who is a man of color himself, attacks other people of color. Yeah. There are almost very few like why are you attacking your your quote unquote congregation, sir? Just one one quick like, note. Say black when you mean black. Okay. All right, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Bon Bon Bro is a black man and <laughs> and he and throughout the film he mainly goes after ev everyone else. <laughs> All the other like all his like black congregants and it's 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 even when you learn the story of oh it was the white um the white plantation guy and all his friends that are the ones that did the horrific things to him. And yeah, there can be the argument that he might be mad at the other kind of slaves that didn't help him, but also they were slaves. What could they do? All in a sense, like they in if they did kind of well he was free 
Well, yes, but like in the what time does this did this take place? And I want to know. It was like eighteen ninety. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not. I I apologize. I'm not very well versed in the kind of. No, listen. Okay, I don't keep track of dates. Yeah, I'm not I'm, because <laughs> because I've, been, I've you don't know how many articles I've read on this on this movie. So like that's, that's the only reason I know anything. Yeah. that lines up with with historical fact. Yeah, I've just heard many conflicting things, so so I'm trying to like say this in a way. Well, in the story, and I don't know if the story changed later because there are yeah. we aren't talking about them, but there are sequels to this movie. There are so, and I, and we have we're not talking about them, but yeah, but there are <laughs> trash can. <laughs> Can I ask a logistical, completely unrelated to anything we're talking about question about our sugar <laughs> son, dude? Sugar son, dude. If he's, in essence, he's a ghost, right? Like we've established mm-hmm. he's some kind of spirit. Right. But he's not tied to Cabrini Green because he can go other places. That's true. But I think it's but- kind of in the same sort of area, like the same. Like he's got a network? I feel I like he functions <laughs> almost. I'm just wondering, like, how. Because in the beginning, it's the ghost I mythology. Feel, I'm thinking maybe this might be like a Tulpa situation. Right. Where <laughs> yeah. living, no, that's what I was thinking too. We're, we're living in. We're, his, we're probably his main base is probably Cabrini Green because okay. all his all his congregants kind of live there and everyone fuels the belief into the dessert dude story. Because that's where it originated. That could be something that keeps him mainly tethered there because he has such a strong like fountain of belief that is constantly being kind of funneled to him. I'm just wondering like the logistical aspect of how does he no No, right question. But what what I was thinking is that with Helen starting to kind of try to spread the word, since she is now becoming part of his congregation then he starts following her too. So it's like he can escape if he can, you know, like hitch a ride in somebody's pocket. So now yeah. she's haunted. Right. Most like it's it's kind of like in supernatural how Bobby is attached to the flask and just right. kind right. of travels yeah. with the flask. So Helen is his flask in a way. <laughs> in a way, yeah. You can just yeah. I just I really got hung up on that detail for no good reason. <laughs> No, I know. I know. Well, it's, the I was... is that it, it, it's a good question. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was trying to like figure out for myself. How <laughs> so? I just find with maybe like a tulpa slash like hitchhiking ghost situation. Mm-hmm. Well, because the first time you when the the movie opens, you have those that young couple right. in the bathroom, and they say his name five times, and and then which, by the, the way. Ted Raimi is a bad boy. I struggled with that so I hard. I never laughed harder. Yes, yep. exactly. I was laughing so hard. I'm like, really? Ted Raimi is Billy. And he's supposed I, to be the bad boy in leather. Oh. I died. I was like, I can't, I can't even watch. What are you doing? I love Ted Raimi. I used to have a huge crush on him. This was just a hilarious, hilarious. He's a potato like, chip. Some nepotism or something. He's a potato he's, chip. Like, probably they were like, we get to get... Ted Raimi in this movie, and we're gonna be right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Also, side note: Who says who wants to like say candy chat before getting freaky deaky? 
Like, how does that put you in the white mood? people? <laughs> that was always my question. A white like, girl thing. Like, even whenever hey, I first ever when I'm I first watched that movie, sexy, and every but first, can we summon a spirit? Every like subsequent time after, it's like, hey, you wanna? It's like candy chips and you get down up It's like, no. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's always the white girls who are, who are like. <laughs> that's true. I, I mean, you know, I guess the other thing would be if you're saying Bloody Mary and you're like, oh, let's say Bloody Mary. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is another one I'm going to watch how many times I say that one too. That one, that one freaks me with out twice, too. So. I know, that freaks me out too. But if you add the so. drink at the end. Bloody Mary, the, the oh. drink. The drink, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, or, oh. Bloody Mary with celery. <laughs> with celery. <laughs> okay. Well, before we summon her, yeah, I, I I don't have much more to add to that as well. I do, you know, it is a testament again to Tony Todd. Just going to say that again because it is amazing that he's so memorable. And I I I wish I had tracked how long he actually, how much screen time he actually has because he's not on the screen very much at all. But he's definitely memorable. Just like his appearances in final the Final Destination series are also extremely memorable. And it's because of his presence and who he is. And he's also considered a horror let a horror legend. I mean, I remember when he liked one of my tweets and I fangirled big time. I was like, oh my gosh, Tony Todd noticed me. As well one should, because wow. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that means we're best friends now. <laughs> That means he's going to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Just kidding, everybody. He's not going to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. I, don't I know. wish. Shout to him. I would love for you to interview him. Can oh you imagine? Oh my gosh, I would. That would be so much fun. That would be amazing. I should try and do that. I should try and do that. Can you say his name five times? Maybe it'll summon him. <laughs> yeah. Tony Todd. Tony Todd. Tony Todd. Tony Todd. Tony Todd. There we go. All right, let's go. Ready for this interview to happen? All of a sudden, he pops up on the screen. That would. Be- <laughs> would be incredible. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. But we're going to move on to the next rendition of Candy Corn. (laughs) This is the new one uh, directed by Nia DaCosta, who it's very important to say that because and the reason it's important to stress this is for a number of reasons. But the biggest one is it's very rare that you will have, sadly, that you will have a black woman who is directing a horror movie. She was a co-writer on this as well, working behind the scenes. And this was number one at the box office, which was Sally the first time ever 
that a movie directed by a black woman was number one at the box office. So it's very important to remember it's her film because you would still see right when this came out, you would still see articles saying Jordan Peele's Candyman. Like, yes, he helped write it. He helped produce it, but he did not direct it. It is not his movie. It is her movie. And it's very important that people remember that. It's not a little side joke thing. It really is important. It means something. So I want to talk about that first. You also just said the word. Did I? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there's four. Okay, we cannot say it again, everybody. (laughs) I don't know who who this we is. That's be, true. I'm minding Lucy myself over here. Only- Carla and I are on top of it. We will not be yeah. dying. You are both safe. Susie and I. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to wear this in hopes that. Attract the beast. And, and hold this in hopes that maybe if he sees me. For those of you that can't see this, Susie put on That's a sunflower headband. She held up the bee lion mascot from Gish and a ginormous <laughs> bottle of honey it's it's literally a costco it is kirkland brand <laughs> bottle of honey yeah just so he knows that i go hard i'm like yes <laughs> i could say something there but i won't i will keep it PG. <laughs> okay well let's get into this one we are going to be spoiling this once again and i don't think you should be spoiled for this movie so just to let you know um i mean especially the end and a couple of other things that happen. I think it should be something you should experience. So if you are planning on seeing this and you haven't seen it yet, I would stop listening now. Okay, so I want to talk first about the importance of having Nia DaCosta directing this. And overall, how do you th- how do you think this film comparatively, well, we'll get into the race thing in a second. So let's just first talk about, sorry, let's just talk about Nia DaCosta first. So why do you think it is significant, Carla, that she is the person directing this film and behind the camera? I mean, it's everything. It's absolutely everything. The, the fact that that this version of this is led by Black people in every aspect of it is just absolutely everything. I mean, this is what real representation is. And with Nia DaCosta the the whole thing where her name ends up getting buried behind Jordan Peele's it's not just about Jordan Peele's Jordan Peele's popularity because this wouldn't happen to you know to Catherine Bigelow it wouldn't happen to Patty Jenkins um this is directly tied to misogynoir um and that you know as a shout out it, it's a a term coined by queer uh, queer black feminist Moya Bailey and it, it's I mean, how often do you see, like, I live on Twitter, and I, I know that you are occasional visitors to Twitter as well, Erin, more than... than yeah, I'm like, I'm you. on there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha is like, I don't know her. <laughs> I don't have Twitter. Twitter. I'm not on the Twitter. The Twitter confuses me. Okay. <laughs> Susie. Um, but there, there's often, you often see all of the pointing out of how black women are treated in everyday life online and everything. And and that's something that, you know, like it, it, I, I think that with this movie, there's no bigger example than with the way Nia DaCosta's name gets buried behind Jordan Peele's and that's unfair and it's unacceptable. But I, I really think that with her direction and her being at the helm, it's so important 
and it really as you're watching it you're watching a a very black film you're you're watching a film that's uh where the the lore has so much more weight to it and there's there there's just so much pointed out to you so many like little nuances and details that you obviously didn't get from the first film because i just spent you know like 45 minutes telling you everything that <laughs> like pointing all that out so clearly there's a lot that was left on the table so yeah and and as far as as direction like i've said many times i don't know squat about direction itself as an art and as a craft uh so i'm just gonna say looks like she did a good job sasha yes carla says it all perfectly and so succinctly yeah and i don't know if this fits here or later but the the scene where she's when she goes into the laundromat Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and she's Me looking again. for him, and she goes through the door, and she hits. There's like that basement door, and she opens it and looks down the stairs and goes, "Nope," and Love closes that. the door and walks away. I was like, <laughs> "See, this is what happens." Because had that been a white woman, <laughs> she would not be wearing a bra, yeah. and she would have run down the stairs. <laughs> not been wearing a bra. <laughs> if that but had been me. Helen, she would have been. <laughs> yes, if it had been Helen, she, she would have been wearing inexplicably. A white tank top, three sizes too small, sans bra, down the stairs at breakneck speed. That's what would have happened. You forgot standing but, at the top of the stairs and saying, hello? Yep. Yeah, hello, right. yeah, is anybody, is there anybody there? down there? Oh, sugar man. Are you down there? Where's my sugar daddy? I know you're in here. Like, come on. So I don't know if that goes to you know, a female director. I mean, I'm sure it was written in the script, but part of that is like, it's got to be the directing. I don't know. I don't know how film works. So that scene just really struck me. I, I think yeah. she's actually credited as one as one of the three writers. The she three is one writers. of the three writers. She is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Then I'm giving her full credit for that scene because that was very clearly <laughs> a woman that did that. Yeah. Because it's- a man would not have done it that way. Yeah, it's Jordan Peele, um, Wynn Rosenfield, and Nia DaCosta are the writers for it. So, well, there. then we all know she did that scene. She's responsible for it because <laughs> a man would not have done it that way. But I just loved that whole thing where it was like, nope, and shut the door. Yeah. Yes. Susie. I love this film. I I like after watching it I definitely think it's going into one of my top favorite horror movies. I am fully prepared <laughs> once I have the disposable funds to go out and buy a physical copy of it. That's how much I love this. <laughs> it's it's so good. Um I personally am a fan of like cinematography and directing and you can see if well at least I could see like in every frame like the importance of the story that they were telling and how every little detail like means something and is something really important. And it's, it's such, it is truly a work of art. And I am so happy that the success of this film will mean that hopefully other black creators, black women creators get to bring to life their wonderful works of art because 
sadly we have a really big lack of of black creators and hopefully the the positive reception that this is getting will will lead to more to more work for those creators and for more people saying hey let's 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 give this a chance let's put their stories out there and it's just it's to all the listeners and to everyone truly if you have not seen this please do because it is it is so great and it sticks with you and it's it's then even though i do like the original in my opinion this is a very like big improvement on the first iteration of confectionery man <laughs> powdered sugar donut powdered sugar donut <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as someone who has who went to film school and knows, I mean, she she is an amazing director in that you don't see the directing. It's, it's the best way to put it. It's it's so seamless. And I hope this also leads to people seeking out Nia DaCosta's other movie, Little Woods, which is not a horror movie, but go seek it out. It's a small independent movie. I hope this leads to a, a million other amazing things for her because she is a very, very gifted director and a writer. And I mean, the way this film is done is it's really a powerful and haunting movie. I think I know seeing it, I saw it on a big screen. I saw it in Dolby digital, which if you don't know what that means, that means you basically are feeling the movie. So it was really loud and you felt it. And, and the beginning when, you know, when the, when you see the MGM logo and it's backwards and then the monkey paw logo is backwards and the bad robot logo is backwards. And so everything is backwards. And I saw it with my sister and my sister's like, is it supposed to be that way? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be that way. (laughs) It's saying something. And so it, so you do have that, first fear we were like wait is there something wrong with the projector (laughs) did they do something wrong but even from that moment she is trying to say something she is trying to make a statement every single shot and frame in this movie like Susie said is done on purpose there is not a wasted moment in the movie which is which is a big kudos to her I have read criticisms of this movie this movie is not universally loved there are some critiques that are um that are good to listen to, I think, and to read. And there are critiques of a lot of people didn't like the way Chicago was presented and some of that stuff because there's still Cabrini Green in this. But I think, and since we're going to be spoiling this, I think, you know, what I think is so interesting about this movie, as opposed to what we were just talking about, even though I guess you could say it was an origin story for Helen, for the legend of Helen, but this is an origin story for a new sweet and sugary man it's 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 basically the orientation story for that it's you know you watch him at from the bee sting that oh my gosh watching that oh that i was like oh we kept (laughs) my sister and i kept looking at each other like go to the hospital just go to the hospital (laughs) because it just kept getting worse and worse that bee sting but you're watching the origins so what you're doing is you're going on a hero's journey with a person that will end up being this urban legend and i thought that was a great way to frame it and to frame it in the art world and to frame it in a, talking a lot about gentrification as well but also having it be such a predominantly black cast 
with predominantly black creators behind the scenes makes a huge, huge difference. And that's why I think the way this film handles, and we'll get into that now, the way this film handles race is a lot different, a lot different than the way the 1992 film did. And granted, they do reference that film a lot, but this was a different, a, a, a different step. So Carla, how do you think this film succeeded with race and how it handled race? I think it, it's, you know, there's no question that this is a, the superior film in terms of dealing with, with race. And there are so many elements that are spectacularly handled that also work really, really well as a, um, as a reflection of the 90, 1992 film. And with, with the, the first film, there's so much about mirroring you know, like there's literal mirroring when you're facing the mirror and saying this dude's moniker. And there's also the mirroring of the the buildings where Helen lives versus the the buildings at Cabrini Green. There's the mirroring of the apartments that when you pull down the medicine cabinet, there's like nothing in between. And um, if you just push the other medicine cabinet, you have an identical apartment, but mirror image to your own. And, you know, th that's just like the beginning of, of all of these little mirror things that, and why the first film was so effective as a horror story is that Helen ends up reflecting back so many of these traits that main dude had that made him so terrifying and so fascinating to the neighborhood. But then also with the setup of the new film, so many of the things that take place in the new film reflect back on the old one. And then within the film itself, you have the mirroring of Anthony as an artist and Daniel Robitaille, who was the original sugar-hooked candy distributor. <laughs> um, they're both artists. They're, they're both... Uh, becoming well-known because the uh, Daniel Ribito, he was really coming into his own. He was becoming more and more well-known. He was, be he was uh, very sought after for these rich people portraits portraits and Anthony's art is, you know, reflecting the experiences of, of blackness um, through his, through his work. Then as the movie progresses and you, you know, we, we get Coleman Domingo coming in as as William, which was an amazing role. I mean, not just I mean, the acting, of course, because this man is just a fantastic actor. He can just take any role and really. Oh, bring out so many nuances and levels. And you're just like, eh. so I'm not familiar with him at all, but I want him to read me the dictionary. Like he needs to read all of the call map sleep stories. Like just read me anything because he's just got a very soothing. I was like, Oh, he's, he's a phenomenal actor. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, Sorry. And, and I fully agree on, on his voice. So it, it's really interesting that, you know, because in the first movie you have main dude himself narrating his, his entrance and, and his, his myth and in the second movie, you have William starting out by by narrating. You, you see him as a kid, kind of accidentally getting 
Sherman, who was at that point um, being called the dude with the hook and the sweets and the razors in the sweets. Um, he was being called that, but nobody knew what he was. He, he was just a, 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 an odd dude who lived in, in the walls and he lived in the shadows. And so from there, you start to tackle race in a very different way. You, you start out the film with this little black boy living his, you know, his, his life of being told, go do the laundry. So what does he do? He goes and does the, the laundry. And then he passes the, this, this whole squadron of, of white cops. And, you know, they, they do what white cops do as kids are passing, which is call to him. Like he's, he's a, a lost dog and like, like, psh, psh, you know, like, and it just shakes the poster at him. Like, use your words, bro. Um, he's a human. He can understand you. Um, and then he just goes on to mind his business and he comes across the man that they're looking for. And understandably, I mean, like you've just seen him on a wanted poster and you, you hear these tales about the candy being that they have razor blades and everything. This dude's offering you a piece of candy. So naturally he freaked out. But even as a kid who lives in these projects, who, um, has uh, a very different upbringing than any of us knew. You know, the brutality that Sherman experienced because he let out a, a scream of horror was something that he couldn't have foreseen. And he, he just, um, it stayed with him. It stayed with him and then it just completely tainted his his psyche, I believe. And... It, it just really says a lot about the effect of police brutality and what it does to to the minds of the people who are the survivors of the witnesses of it, you know. So it's it's I don't know. I, I just feel like it makes so much ghastly sense that he would be the one to take on. The, the mantle of being the person who needs to perpetuate this this story. Like, you know, he's fading into obscurity. I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen. And he ends up having, you know, the, the accidental, uh, the very coincidental luck of Anthony crossing his path. And it's like, ooh, perfect. This is the absolute perfect guy. This is the guy that... Um, you know, the the pimp coat candy distributor had kidnapped and had had his altar and everything. So it's like it's perfect, it's perfect. He it has to be him. It has to be him. So uh, he kind of manipulates Anthony. I, it, it, you know, like you have the the ghost story and you have the spirit and everything and all of that. But then you also have the like, oh, but what if? these are just manipulations what if anthony's mind is just being poisoned by william by these stories by his own willingness to believe it and that's how he ends up with this fate it, it wasn't uh prescribed it was just the um william's very masterful manipulation of of his of his fate and there's something that the art critic says to him to anthony 
at the opening of his, you know, like, and I just thought that it was not only that, that you have to say the word and you have to say the name, like the, the piece is called say my name. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all I could hear was, you know, destiny's child in my head like say my name say my name <laughs> which i was just like you know i don't know if they did that on purpose but you know it, it just all it did for me was have a very pop 90s moment and i was like yeah i love this i love this um but then it turns out it's like but like a medicine cabinet and you have to open it and there are pieces inside of it and you have to see more to it which i love as a concept the art critic i don't know what she was on like oh it's so derivative blah 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 but what I, where I, what I, where I do agree with her, well, not agree with her, but but where I do kind of see where she's going with it, is that she's saying that these artists moving into the newly gentrified um, Cabrini Green area are part of the gentrification, and they are part of uh, of these things that um, that white people are being accused of for coming in and you know rolling over history to pretend that it didn't happen, and then you know set up your art studio and your downstairs Starbucks um, without a care for the history of, of the place, um, which is kind of rich coming from her, you know, and I was kind of like, I, I don't know. And also let me just say that all of the art speak in this, I don't care about it. I'm like, why, why is there so much art speak? I, I just, I, I'm, you know, like, I, I don't know how many of the audience members are really gelling with this because I was like, get to the point, please. Um, I, I, I get a lot of what the movie was trying to do because most, I'm trying to think if, if, yeah, pretty much all of the people killed in this movie are white. And, you know, it, it makes more sense for a vengeful spirit who was killed because a white woman and with her dad and all of the the murdering of him and and the stories that William keeps telling of how like this mantle gets passed on from a, a new um, black victim to the next one to the next one it, it makes sense but at the same time there was I think a lot that kind of took me out of it because the the, the high school girls portion I you know I I other than, than than helping to cement that idea, I thought that it was unnecessary. I, I just, I, I didn't really care about it. And I frankly, I forgot all about it until I was reading a review about it. I was like, right, that happened. So, you know, and, and as far as what it's, it says so much about race that for me, it got repetitive. And there was just so much exposition, like just so much exposition. And I think that that there was so much in the film that that was more elegant in the the tackling of of what this film is saying about race that it didn't really need all of this exposition. Uh, I think that the one you know uh, when William says they're all real, single hook glucose distributor is how we deal with the fact that it's still happening, that that these killings of, of Black men are still happening. And I was bowled over when he said that. I was like, oh my God, like what a what a succinct way, succinct way to, to say that. But then it gets repeated like 15 times throughout the film. And I was like, I got it the first time. I swear I was paying attention. Coleman, don't you believe me? I love you. Why don't you believe me? I was, I was awake. I was paying attention. And then also like, 
there were so many times that, that I was like, okay, so then what, what are you doing with this character? What are you, it, it just, for me, it wasn't as, as scary. It wasn't as effective as a, um, as a horror film as the first one was because it was so involved in the setup of characters only to kind of just not really use them as an integral part of the plot that I was like, I, I just wasted precious time getting invested in this particular character for no real good reason. And, you know, um, I, I was more invested in Troy than I was in Anthony. And that's because I had hoped that there would be more in Anthony for me to root for other than, than the familiarity of him as the baby from the first film and of, you know, getting to see Anne-Marie McCoy, which, you know, played again by Vanessa E. Williams, who has not aged a day since the first film. It's just like, wow. But he... Troy creates action. Troy is involved in moving the story along. Anthony, things happen to him. He's like a vessel for all of this manipulation. But I don't feel like he contributes to the action. William does, because William is the one manipulating these things along. Brianna doesn't really become a character with much to do other than to react to Anthony until like the last third of the film. Um, and she's, you know, she is the most important portion of that very ending. But other than that, it's like, you know, like, give me more to get invested in with these characters. You're wasting so much time in exposition that I'm, that I'm like, okay, well, okay, cool. Um, all right. So now this is happening. All right. All right. But yeah, so that was my, <laughs> my whole thing on can, can be person. <laughs> Sasha, do you have anything to add on that here? No, I don't. I was glad that Carla brought up the name of the piece of the the Say My Name piece. I also had the same hot second of, what did they just, what? Um, <laughs> you, you which I don't think was the point. And if it was, <laughs> well played. Um, but I don't think that's what they meant by it. I'm no, probably not. not. But can you just imagine if they had done what they've done with so many of these films and just had like a really creepy slow down version of yes. the song, like "Say My Name, Say My Name"? That would have made it a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very, very, very much so. Yeah, and I did like the line that, and I don't remember who said it. I literally like just I watched this. I swear to God, I watched it today. <laughs> I know. People just trust me. But one of them says, black people don't need to be summoning shit. And I thought that was hysterical. Yeah, that was true. Because, yes, that was yeah, true. It's just all of these like horror movie, like typical things that people do, you know, go down to the basement, call out, we're going to summon the random thing, you know? And so I love that they were just like, nope, nope, we're not, no. No, we don't do that. That we don't do that here. That's nope. Take that somewhere else. Um, mm -hmm. So I appreciated that. But yes, everything else that Carla said. And Susie. Um, well, from watching the trailers for this new kind of iteration of the story, I I had kind of an impression that it was going to have to, like it does deal with art, but I thought there was going to be more an exploration of that. I mean you kind of get a glimpse of how through art we ex 
exploring kind of express culture and identity, but I didn't really get a lot of that from the film. There are like some bits and pieces there, like the art of storytelling and how that, how like the continuation of telling stories that we have within our communities and the beliefs and, and things that we have attached to certain urban legends, how that kind of plays like an integral role and in how sometimes if we come to a point where we start to lose that, um, there, there, it, it is kind of very detrimental to those communities and how it can push them to want to lead a sort of resurgence for those stories, like how William is doing that he wants to revive the confectionery man story so that it's it can it's continues and is available for a new generation almost and you you do see that in in the end almost with how we kind of get i think i think it's daniel roberto's face and voice telling brianna to kind of like in a way to continue to spread the story so that everyone will know about what happened and what will what will continue and what's going on and I mean, this is probably just me, but there are sometimes moments when I like to do deep dives into movies, and there is a scene in this new one where um, Anthony revisits, goes to visit Kirby Green, and he comes to this church, and he holds up this picture that he has of it, and then he pulls it down, and the church is white, and I was really curious about that, like, why would they show us that, and I kind of, like, looked into it, and apparently that church used to have like it exists in real life and it used to have this beautiful mural by this artist um william walker who was very prolific in the 70s and, and an activist and his mural was of like four figures with interconnected heads kind of it was meant to be kind of like a piece talking about like the unity of different peoples and of different races and genders and how they're all equal and surrounding the figures, there's like the names of all the different people who died for for kind of like the furthering of of black people, like their for their causes. And that mural has been literally whitewashed. <laughs> and it also kind of kind of speaks to kind of like how that whole community um became whitewashed with the tearing down of Kirby Green and the rebuilding of like new condominiums and how they're trying to make it all shiny and new and to kind of say like oh forget about the past this is the future so it's and like like Carla said like with the whole killing of the high school girls college girls high school I, I think they were high school yeah the youths <laughs> I did I did forget a, yeah I did forget about it but then again <laughs> I overthought things when I remembered it and I was and I thought to myself like oh maybe this is a commentary on like the folly of youth <laughs> and how and how they're like ah I'm young I'm pretty nothing's gonna happen to me let's just do this for shiggles and it's like no don't do it for the shiggles don't do it stop and there is like within this movie, there is a lot of interesting parallels between this and the original, because like the very first, I think I think it's the first killing, with the curator and his girlfriend. 
It's his intern. It's inappropriate. And she attached them together at the belt. Which I was like, what is happening? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was very much ick. Like when that happened, I was like, when she's like, I'm on plan B. Like I know, and I'm, and I'm, I was just like, or nuvering. She's like, I'm not nuvering, and I just went, oh, you sir, are not, no, no. And I honest, I'll be honest. I was like, I hope you die first. Yeah, he was. Cool. Um, but there is like an interesting parallel of like the first kill in this movie is brought about by again horniness, and how in the first movie. Like it's also brought about by horniness, <laughs> and the main victims are all two white people, and there is like throughout the movie you see all these interesting parallels and like how things happen and it like and and I did think that there was going to be more. I did. I really wanted to get more. Ba- as much as I love the movie, I'm sorry if my thoughts are a little bit disjointed. Um, as as much as I did love the movie, I did want to have a little bit more like exposition and like character development from both Brianna and Anthony because we we get like a little bit um into a glimpse of her backstory with her witnessing her father's suicide and and we they kind of like touch on it at some points like the curator the the curator lady who works at the museum tells her Oh, so you were there. Um, you're the you're uh, say my name's girlfriend, and you were also witness to your own father's suicide. And her brother tells her, "Hey, we have to clean out dad's stuff." And mm-hmm. she kind of dances around that and moves the subject away. And I I kind of wanted to have a little bit more of an exploration behind that and how how maybe how that affected her and how like you would think that maybe witnessing your father's death would kind of make you a little bit adverse to the arts or or kind of anything to do with that because I feel like it would bring you a lot of pain I mean I'm not sure like and I'm people please feel completely free to call me out if I'm talking out of line and just kind of like what kind of what drove her to seek this career as a curator like I would be really interested to know that story and I wanted to know more of like Anthony, like he is kind of this, this person that things happen to, but the, like we, we don't know much about him other than he doesn't really like to talk to his mom. Is there more, can we get more of like a story into that? Like maybe why he doesn't like to go see her, why his girlfriend has to constantly keep reminding him, like, go see your mom. Because from from the bit that we see of their interactions and from how she she treated him or how like their interactions were as him as a baby in the first movie he, like she's his mom like from what i get a sense that she really loves him and so i kind of wanted to know like what what caused that divide like what yeah that made me so sad for her because after the way that she mourned him when she thought that he was dead and the way that she was so protective of him even going as far as as to take him somewhere else and not you know trying to shield him from his own past and like where's the rift i i don't understand it's called reactive attachment disorder oh Oh. tell us more 
Yes. I'm just going to throw that out there. Tell no, us. No, seriously. Tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> no, I was just going to say reactive attachment disorder. So because he went through such a traumatic thing as a child when he got taken by um, sugar slasher happy hooker. Happy hooker. <laughs> <laughs> That is hands down my favorite. Happy Hooker, man. <laughs> there, there is a whole series of movies about that too. Called, yeah. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> I think so, there are. Anyway, there's just that. there's a certain level of PTSD that's going to go with that, even though he was so young. So it, I am pretty sure that's going to impact his attachment and how he bonds with mom because he had that separation piece, and then mom kind of tries to cover it all up he's going to know that. So reactive attachment kids are very push-pull, push-pull. They they just don't form solid attachments. So my guess is watching it, I was like, oh, he's a rad kid. That that That's informed us so much more in his character than the movie did. <laughs> that, that like three-minute explanation <laughs> told me more about Anthony than this like hour and a half. <sighs> So here's a follow-up question. He was a baby. Um, mm-hmm. this is an, I apologize if this sounds really stupid, but he he was a baby, like a, a wee child in the first one. Would he be able to remember that period of, because presumably I think he is with, with B-Boy for a little over a month, I think. Well, I think. Based I, on... Yeah, I don't Because he gets taken and then and then Helen gets told, Oh, you've been in here for a month. And then she gets out, goes and grabs Anthony, sort of rescues him from the bonfire. Would and my concern about him being there for a month is how is Happy Hooker feeding him? With the sweetness. Thank you. Because that's my my concern with that. Like (laughs) he he seems to be in the same exact outfit. Has he changed this child? Nope. Has he been it's called plot holes. Has yeah, he like had the bees like take care of him? Well, like, <laughs> has he had bee Can you imagine like the bees just like happily like, do, 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 do. like something out of Cinderella? The Disney version of Happy Hooker. Well, I I think you know I think going to that with the child point is honestly I you know I don't know about everyone on my panel but for me my first memory is like I was like five I think or something you know so I don't think we necessarily remember that time but I do think if there is trauma that you incur incur at that time that you will I think carry it even if you don't realize you're carrying it so I think even though I don't think there's any way that Anthony really can remember that time as a baby I'm mm-hmm. sure there is a part of him that that was instilled on his psyche that he doesn't even realize is there. And I think that's part of what he is working through throughout this movie. I think that is supposed to be part of what he's doing. That's what his art is supposed to be. That's what the his relation to Happy Hooker is supposed to be. That's what his relation to... I mean, the fact that he gets that bee sting and it's so horrendous and he doesn't do anything about it says everything about his character right there because and not just how disturbing that was yeah and i mean when he's sitting there at the art critic's house and he's picking at it and he starts pulling back the skin i was like oh god (laughs) oh my god i I think i can watch a a lot of stuff portion of it (laughs) i i was like is it because he's an artist so maybe he doesn't have health insurance you know like 
Maybe he he thought that, you know, I won't go to the clinic right now. Maybe I'll just put some paint thinner on it. What is the deal with not getting that checked out as it's spreading through your entire arm? You know, I will say as someone, I'm going to approach this from my own psychosis, my own mental health, and I have, you know, and my own PTSD and other things. I have this really bad habit. I don't take care. I don't do things for myself. Like I finally have made an eye appointment and I haven't been an eye doctor in forever and I wear glasses. I don't, buying stuff for myself is like unheard of. It really, I feel guilty every time I buy stuff for myself. If I need to get like, I will have stuff that's breaking down, not working. Like I have my dresser drawers need to be replaced and have been needing to be replaced for over a year because they're trash. But to me, I'm not worth doing that. So it's like this weird psychosis that you have in your head. And so for me, I think that's a lot of where he's coming from. I don't think, I mean, part of it is of course the happy hooker part and the, the part that he's becoming this, this um, sweet man and he's becoming that. But I think the other bigger part of it is he is also so in this world of not knowing how to take care of himself or to put himself first. Or I think even though his mom loved him a lot, I got the feeling that there was no real connection there. And I don't think he felt he was ever cared for as a child. And I think he felt like he was lied to a lot as a child and manipulated a lot. And so when you have that and you're carrying it around, I think that went into the fact that he wasn't getting that medical treatment. He ends up going there, but it's nothing that he really even wanted to do. It was just, to the point where he had to, but I mean, that was, that was something that like was so horrific that it's just like, why wouldn't you go do that? And I'm sitting there saying that what, meanwhile, I'm like, you haven't gotten new glasses in this amount of time. You haven't done that. So it's the same kind of thing. It's that thing of like not having that worthiness of thinking you're worth even getting a medical checkup. It's this weird thing that you do when you feel it's stupid about it. But it's just, it's this thing that plays in your head. And I think, I mean, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think that's part of what that was. But Aaron, if your eyeballs were flaking off and starting to corrode down your face, I'm pretty sure you would go to the doctor. I would hope I would, but I'm just saying. The bee sting thing, I mean, it crept all the way up his arm. It was up his neck. It was like. It took No, I know. I'm over. just saying, I, I mean, I think it's to an extreme, but I'm yeah. just saying relatable wise is like, you know, for instance, as far as body injuries, I, years ago, I went into a house that was being fixed and remodeled and there was a hole in the floor. Didn't know there was a hole in the floor. And I fell into the hole in the floor. I was by myself. Luckily I was able to get myself out and I was, and I never went to the doctor to look at this. And I really should have, because I think I really injured my foot terribly and it healed wrong. So my foot will hurt a lot. And the reason I didn't go is I felt so embarrassed that I did this and I didn't want to get the people in trouble that had the house. And so I didn't go. I like was embarrassed because I was meeting someone there that they, I was like, I've got to hide the fact that I hurt myself. It's this weird thing Mm -hmm. and it's not healthy. But, and I know it to, with him, it's an extreme, but I'm just saying, I, I'm probably reading way too much into it. And that's probably not, it was probably just about him becoming uh, the sweet man. But, but I'm, sh- but I don't know. I don't know if there was more to it just because I think I, I do agree. I mean, I love this movie. I really did like this movie a lot. I do 
agree though that there are things that should have been explored more and i wonder if there was a lot cut from this that's what i really wonder because especially with brianna and exploring that thing because it's almost like she purposely goes out with artists because she has this thing that she's dealing with her father's suicide and you know and not, and and she's going into this world of art even though art destroyed her father is the impression i got so it's almost like she's trying to heal her father through working through this. It's what you can kind of surmise, but you have no idea. I'll yeah, I it. wonder if there was stuff. I don't know, but I wonder. And I don't even know if there was a different cut of this. I don't think so. Because this was supposed to be released a year ago and, of course, was delayed because of COVID. So I don't know if there was even a cut back then. But, I mean... So that those are, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered. So I didn't mean to bring personal into it. I was just trying to explore where I think he's coming from. And I think he's, he's that actor, which I want to try and say his name, but I know I'm going to say it wrong. So I really apologize. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, how do you say his first name? Does anybody know? I think Abdul? it's Yaya. Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah, I was going to say. Yaya. Yeah. He is so, he is so, I thought he was really, really fantastic and he was wonderful to watch. I mean, he just, he was wonderful to watch on screen. And uh, so much emotion in his eyes and little movements he would do in this, the scene when he's at the art critics house and he's in the, and he looks in the mirror and he sees the sweet man there and the reflection. And just the way he even flinches a little bit and covers up his face with his, just the way he did those little movements. And he's just, he's so good. I just want to call out his performance. I think everybody is phenomenal in this movie I, I do want to say that i think all the performances are good and the bathroom scene that scene is the one i see critiqued more than any other scene in the movie a lot of people think it should have just been deleted from the movie and 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 i totally with the girls that. yes with the girls sorry i should have specified <laughs> Because like there are a lot of people going to the bathroom in this movie. Like unlike most films where you're like nobody ever pees, everybody, everybody in both pees. movies is just constantly in the bathroom. Uh, but yeah, I've seen that one. Uh, there's been a lot of critique of that scene, like all over the place that that was unnecessary and that it was. A lot of people thought it was heavy-handed to have you know, to that they were also trying to show a racial divide there when you had the black teenager, that woman come in there. And then you had all the white teenagers that were playing the game. And then you had the black teenagers who was being picked on and nothing happened to her. And so they were, so some people have said that that was another critique of. Yeah. And, and that, that's exactly my view on it. It, it just seemed like really ham-fisted. Like we get it. Okay. This time, it, with this iteration of the movie, he's going after the white people who have wronged a black person one way in one way or another. But th that that was just like overkill, <laughs> quite literally. Gratuitous. It was, it was very gratuitous. I, I just there was no point in any of those characters really. Like they 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 honestly should have spent that time on expanding on Anthony and Brianna because they're yeah. the characters that I wanted to know more about, and I feel like their development and just our connecting with them suffered in favor of the the white teens who were you know kind of mean getting theirs so i was like oh, okay if that's what you want to do i'm not a film director what do i know 
Well, I mean, even though I think that, like, if with me reading too much into, like, oh, maybe this is commentary on the, on like, the foolishness of the youths of of playing like, I think it might have been just like a way to rack up the body count. Although, like, I feel that would have been one of the reasons why to really like throw it in our faces, like, yeah, he's a threat. Right, but then if if they're gonna do that. You know, make it have something to do with Anthony or or Brianna or just somebody like, that we care about. Like make it, for, like if maybe if you want to have that kill, and then probably maybe make it a more interesting kill. Like, right. Like in the first one, almost I think almost all the kills are connected to Helen in some way. Right. And she and and that's why she's kind of painted as like she lost her mind, and this is why. Right. This isn't really. It simultaneously doesn't leave, you know, room for doubt that, oh, well, unlike with Helen, where it could have been her, this time, it's definitely not Anthony, wink, wink. But that that kind of, that takes away from the mystery and the mystique of the myth of this man. You know, like, we're, we're not given any room for our imagination to say, well, ooh, maybe it's Anthony. You know, it's like, he was... He was nowhere. He was not. He had an alibi, and we saw it with our own eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's the Ted Bundy move. Kill all the sorority girls. <laughs> it's exactly what it was. I mean, yeah. the one girl was at the art show. That's the only yeah. connection. Yeah. She was at the art show. She had the piece of paper that said "Say my name" and then listed Happy Hooker Sugar Slasher's name five times and then she walked away like that's the only time we saw her up until she died and then it's the ted bundy move it's let's kill the sorority girls so that you very clearly know that there's a monster afoot okay well i just want to briefly ask it even though the the score is pretty similar i just think it's more powerful in this one i want to talk about the score because i think i just briefly want to mention it just get everyone's thoughts on it because i just think the score is amazing and (laughs) beautiful so do you like the score carla i do i do i i liked that there were so many elements brought in by that composer and co-sound designer robert ike uh, um aubrey Lowe, and that he used philip glass's original score from the 1992 movie as scaffolding and then built this whole beautiful symphony of sound around it and that's all I have to say about that because I don't really know about this stuff. I just like you, <laughs> Sasha. <laughs> I liked it. It sounded pretty. <laughs> it sounded pretty, Susie. <laughs> Me gusta. That's pretty. Yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> I, like, I really liked it. Yeah, I don't know much about um like the composure of of music and and such, but. I do like hearing pieces that like incite reactions within me. And I did like, I think a really good job was done with the with the composing of the soundtrack of this film. It's very good. Very good. I like what Carla said, like, I feel like it would have been really interesting. Like, okay. So everyone, has everyone seen us? I'm going to, I'm going to. Yes. Trenching. We okay. are going to be talking about us later. I can year. talk about that. <laughs> this is a small spoiler. In us. You get like a creepy, slowed down version of I got, I got mm-hmm. five on it, 
I feel like it would have been really interesting if like with Anthony's piece, if like Carla said, if there was like a slowed down, creepy, maybe like an orchestral number probably of say my name. Like that, I feel like that would have been really, really interesting. And now if anyone has any skills in that regard or knows how to do that, please edit, <laughs> edit say my name creepily and send it to me because yes. <laughs> I feel like that's a, such a harder song to make creepy because it's like, you know, every other call is a huh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But it's it's like, but nobody's, yeah, okay. I, I don't know. They'd have to like really work hard at it. And I, I'm here to just champion the effort. I feel like it could be done. You put some cellos in there because like a slow cello is always like a good like, ooh. It's like, <laughs> I feel like that, yes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm very interested in hearing that. Like, if someone can do it, please, please send. Or can someone, if someone has already done it, then also send me the link. Yes. Yeah. Say my name. <laughs> say okay. my name. Say my name. <laughs> Everyone knows I love music. I Music and sound design is more important in a horror movie than any other genre, in my opinion. And it can add to it. It can take away from it. It can hit you over the head with it. It can do all sorts of stuff. And I think this score is brilliantly done. And I have to say that was one of the best parts of seeing this movie in the theater because feeling that score was something else entirely because it was like being in the movie so, I mean, one thing I will say about Dolby is even though I like Dolby, it is hard to watch a movie in Dolby because even the speaking is really loud. So then it sounds like people are yelling at you constantly. It can hurt your ears. So <laughs> I know my sister was like, I'm never seeing a movie in Dolby again <laughs> because of that, because it's fine with the music. But when you, you know, you have the talking at the same level, it can be annoying. But I think the score is perfect. So I just wanted to mention it because it's me and I had to mention that. Okay, so I want to wrap up with talking about um, if you've seen this movie and if you stayed during the credits, there is a shadow puppet thing throughout the credits showing different depictions of violence and murder uh, against black men throughout history. And it's also, you know, lots of and, and it also comes back and forth between watching Anthony paint. And then I think it was also the first original painter who all of a sudden his name escapes me, even though we've said it about a billion times. Daniel Robito. Thank you. Yes. So um, I want to know. (laughs) Um, Robitussin. So Carla, did you think this was effective doing this puppet show? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. And frankly, like that was all the exposition that I that I needed. I, I think that it conveyed so much of what the film was trying to hammer into our heads more effectively than the prolonged ex- exposition did. Like I, I just I felt like it was a very it was such an elegant presentation to it. And there's that kind of like that that innocence of you know it's a it's a little boy playing with puppets juxtaposed with the horrors of what you're seeing um and the fact that you're not even looking at the puppets you're looking at the shadows of the puppets so these are the shadows of history and these are just like projections of something that happened so it's even in tune with with the movie itself 
that you're getting all of these different versions of this guy and what happened um, at the beginning of, of the of the film when, they, when they're talking about Helen you're getting the story that you just saw if you just saw the first film like I did and I, I watched them almost back to back and they're telling you the story but they get a little a little detail here and there wrong and that's just how stories go if, if it's a if it's a, a verbal thing you know you're, you're gonna mess up or twist a detail and then suddenly becomes a, a whole new thing um and with these with these shadow puppets it's that same feeling of you're getting an impression of of history with so many movies it's easy to turn on to tune out at the, at the credits even if you're the kind of person who stays through the credits it's just boring seeing you know like okay endless list of 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 names but this is just amazing I, i'm really I, i'm as much as, as i have you know my criticisms for it as just in, in in what it is as a horror film i'm so glad that it exists and i and i'm glad that it was made and that it, it that it's out there for for people to watch because it is an absolute work of art it's an absolute work of art like i said you know for me it doesn't really do it as a horror film but if you just go into it looking for the entertainment value is still there the the artistic expression is phenomenal and that that end sequence just oh my god mm -hmm. sasha i agree the end was just it was phenomenal to watch because they do some of it in the beginning there's some sequential stuff and at first i was like what is happening and i think like the second or third time they did a little splice of it i was like i wonder what an entire movie like this would be and then they did that whole end thing. I was like, now I know. <laughs> and would I watch it? Yes. I would watch an entire movie like that. It was it was just cool. It was very impactful. Very like it hit it just hit. It hit right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Susie. Yeah. Um, I'm absolutely in love with the end credits. It is like a like a wonderful showcase of like the art of like shadow puppetry and also the art of like, storytelling how like the story like the stories that they tell of all these different uh, black men and how they've been turned into glucose gentlemen is just it's it is it's very impactful and they like not a word is said through it you just have the score and yet the story just you you understand every bit of it and like you just get it and i love how like you kind of started with the movie with the with with the with the bit of of the of the puppetry and then we ended with it and it's just like i can easily see william just making these puppets and and acting the story out it's 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 just a wonderful kind of expression of artistry and it's so impactful and it's it's the first time credits have ever made me cry same <laughs> of, of how like just oh like honestly i would have loved I, I also would have loved if the whole movie was just 
this the use of of the shadow of the cutout shadow puppets to convey the story i feel like that also would have been also very interesting to see mm-hmm. as well but it's just and i i do watch credits but i rarely pay attention to them but this like my attention was like solely on the story that they were telling me and when it got to the end i was like hold on a second what no it's like i didn't want it to end because it was just it was listen i was the bee and it was my honey that's that's all (laughs) (laughs) yeah i cried too i was it was so beautiful and i think I really hope that there is a way, I don't know if there already is a way for people to just watch that. People don't have to, I mean, I think people that won't watch this movie because it's a horror movie, I still think they should watch that end credit sequence. I just, that's how powerful I think it is. I think it is amazing. And I, and both my sister and I, when we saw it, there weren't very many people actually in the theater. There were like, I think four other people and two people left right when that started they left and then the two other people stayed like we did and both my sister and i said i judge anyone who does not stay through this (laughs) honestly i mean because it's so it's so beautiful and powerful and you know it it's interesting because we've discussed some some flaws in the movie and i think you know i'm i i think maybe Susie and i might might like it the most out of the four of us but I like, but I'm glad that we all loved this because I think it's just, it's a beautiful way to end the movie and it is so impactful is the best way. And it's just like this, like gut punch and it's beautiful at the same time, even though it's heartbreaking and it's horrible to, I mean, it's weird to say it's beautiful, but it's the way it's done. And it says so much without a word, like you said, Susie. I mean, yes, you have the score, but you don't have a single word uttered and you don't need any words because you know what's going on. You're watching it go on. And and it is the message of the whole movie in a v- even more, more beautiful way, in a very more impactful way in that little tiny, you know, five, seven minute sequence there. Yeah. And, and about credits, I think it's interesting because I used to... I have a friend who he insisted on staying through credits mainly out of respect for all of the people that work behind the scenes, which once again, this podcast does stand with IHC and I'm probably mispronouncing it again, but we do stand with it. And um, as, as uh, Midian Crosby said, you know, we as consumers out there, consumers have a big, huge voice in this. So I'm just, I'm just putting this in here really briefly here, but I do want to say that we have a huge voice. You may think that everybody that makes movies is a millionaire and that's just not true. And you may think that everybody that makes movies, well, you're making a movie, so you can't complain, but there are people that have had everything from constant UTIs to literally dying, making this art that we consume and they're getting paid crap and they're getting treated like they are less than human. So your big thing that you can do as a consumer is you can write the streamers. You can email the creators. You can say, I'm not going to watch this media until you choose, until you treat the people that are creating this media better and give them, you know, a livable wage and give them livable working hours. I mean, it's ridiculous how much they work. And, you know, as Midian said, our, the consumer's voices are actually more impactful than their voices are in some ways because this is a business. It's all about money. And so if they're not making money off of us watching it, 
then, you know, so I just, I had to put that in there just because when we were talking about credits, because that's where you'll see all their names. And there are so many people that go into this and, you know, I, someone was posting about this on Facebook and somebody commented and said, well, all I got to say is cry me a river. And I got really furious because I'm like, you obviously didn't read these stories. People are literally dying, literally dying to create this stuff we consume. So it's, so I just have to throw that out there again, because I just think it's very important. Um, if you haven't, if you're not following IA stories on Instagram, they're on Twitter now too. I highly recommend following them. If you're having trouble finding that account, you can go to the show notes for the Midian Crasby interview, or you can go to our account and we are following them on Twitter and Instagram. So just make sure to do that, support them. Um, if they do end up striking, do support that. So in any way you possibly can. So, okay. Sorry. I just, I know that was a little tangent there, but I just wanted to be able to get that in there because I think it goes along with the people that are in the credits. So, okay. But, but that also goes along with, with this, you know, the people who are suffering in the background for the art that we consume yes. because you know when when actors talk about how you know it was a grueling shoot and we had all these very long days yes I, i'm not saying that they don't also have some form of suffering but what about all of the people who are there setting up who are there throughout the shoot and who are there to break down after mm-hmm. so for every story that you hear of an actor um going through a lot for a shoot just imagine that it's that much worse for the people who you know who are just little blips on the screen as you're walking out of the film Mm -hmm. exactly yeah because i really don't think people realize how much goes into making a movie i really think people honestly think it's just a few people getting in a room and making it it's a miracle any movie ever gets made i want to say that it is an absolute miracle because it it takes so much any any piece of media and so you know you have to realize these people are making you know you know, sometimes script supervisors who that is one of the hardest jobs. I don't think people realize how hard that job is. That job is grueling and it's not fun and it's hard to move up from. And script supervisors are making like $18 an hour. So it's not like these people are making a lot of money, you know? I mean, so they're they're not the ones making the million, million dollars. So just remember that. So when you're consuming your media and please at least follow those accounts. I know you think, they work in entertainment. It doesn't matter. They get to do that. Why don't they just leave? People should not be dying for doing because they're doing what they want to do with their life. They shouldn't be dying. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, some of those stories are just, and as a woman, if you read some of those stories, as far as like, you know, having your period on a set when you're working that some of those horrific stories of literally, you know, not having to sit in it and not being able, I mean, it's just, it's horrific. So just go read those stories and then hopefully you will actually see why so many people are. And I'm glad that some actors and some directors and some people are speaking out, but there needs to be more of that. So I just wanted to get that out there again. Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out and everybody can say where they can be found. Carla. Thank you, Aaron. Yes. You can find me, Carla Temis on Twitter um, that's at Carla Temis. My website is carlatemis.com. That's C-A-R-L-A-T-E-M-I-S. And I also host a podcast called Bedwetter Behead. It's a fantastic world 
of playing FMK with three of our favorite or not favorite characters from TV and film. And it's co-hosted by my BFF, Meg. It's a great time. There's bickering, but there's love. <laughs> you can find that at bedwetbeheadpod on Twitter, at bed.wet.behead.pod on Instagram. And just look for Bedwet or Behead Podcast on the cesspool that is Facebook. <laughs> the cesspool that is Facebook. Yes, it is true. If, if it wasn't for certain people and for the podcast, I would I would leave Facebook in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> Sasha? I think we all would. But yes. we're all trapped there because there's certain groups that we can only access there. So first of all, I have to, and Carla, you can kill me for it later, but I have to confess my um, my super white woman moment with both of these movies. They really spoke to my inner detective researcher. Like I wanted to create the murder board. I wanted to follow all the rabbit holes. And so I recognize that toxic trait in myself. Um, but both of them, I was just like, I, oh my God, I just want to follow the rabbit holes everywhere. Yeah, that that true crime thing. Accepting yeah. it is the first step yeah. towards it's, what? I don't know. I don't, it's the true crime. <laughs> I can't, I don't know what to tell you. I can't help it. I just, I want my murder board. It's fine. Uh, you can find me on the Instagram at vegan geek chick. Where you can find me. Thank you, Susie. Yes, greetings all. You can find me on Instagram at Twitter at SusieQ S underscore SC. It's one underscore, I believe, for Twitter and then two for Instagram. And you can find my dog's Instagram at Benny underscore Pelucita. That's B-E-N-N-I-E underscore P-E-L-U-S-I-T-A. We have some fun fall shoots planned. Some fun <laughs> stuff for fall and the spooky season because we are very much a goth household. Yes. Honorary Adamses in this house up in the hill. So yes, please, please follow and see all the fun spooky things. Awesome. Thank you. And And she is hysterical during our live tweets. I'm serious. She is so funny. I missed you so much last Thursday. I know. I'm Jen so and me. sorry. I mean, I love Jen so much, but because she's my I was, podcast. I was brain thing, but... And by like the time that I remembered, I was like, no, I missed it all. I know. I was like tagging you too. I was like, and Susie, Susie. <laughs> <laughs> you missed, because you predicted a lot of things. I don't know if you've watched oh, I the, did. The okay. One. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was a typical Ryan Murphy hellfire, but you oh did. My God. Sir, we need to have several talks, Ryan Murphy, if you're listening, because I know you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. He's we like, need to have several talks. Sir. <laughs> yeah, it was basically just his way of being like, oh, yeah, critics, it's hard to be as great a writer as me. <laughs> think that's a lot of words. you okay Susie <laughs> well this is Erin you can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty the E and the A and the B are capitalized be sure to like the show on Facebook that hellscape we've been talking about but like it there at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod no it's in that one 
on Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, anything like that, if you'd like to be a potential interview guest on the show, Ryan Murphy, just kidding. <laughs> Actually, I would love to interview Ryan Murphy. I don't think he'd like me to interview him, but I, <laughs> um, Tony Todd, if you would like to be on the show, Please, you have an open invitation anytime you want to. I will kick everybody else out of the room. You have to, you have to say it five times. Yeah. So that's one. Uh, Tony Todd, Tony Todd, Tony Todd, Tony Todd. So you have an open invitation to be on this show anytime you want to. So please, please reach out to us at it's a family pod at gmail.com. I will literally faint if that does end up happening. But you never know. I'll, I'll reach out to him. So tomorrow night, since this is dropping on Friday, we are doing night five of our horror trivia event, Paranormal. And this one is special for many reasons. Um, we are having two guests on. We're having Frederick, who is on the Good Night Movie Club podcast and also Nightlight, sorry, Nightlight Movie pod, Nightlight Podcast, which is a horror podcast. And he's just a really sweet, sweet guy. So I'm really excited to have him on. And then we also have on... Uh, Rachel from the Sort of Brilliant podcast, which is the podcast that sorts characters into Harry Potter houses. I don't understand that, but because I don't know Harry Potter, <laughs> but she's cool. So she's awesome. I'm glad to have her on. And then this is the big important part. Sasha, when we were doing signups, she said if I reached a certain number, she would agree to be on a live stream. And I did reach that number. So Sasha is going to be on. She's going to be in costume. I hate I you all. <laughs> hate me all you want. I am just so excited. So Sasha is going to be on a live stream in costume. So it's going to be awesome. She's going to be on there. I, I may be using her as a little bit of my right-hand woman because Paula's not on this one. Paula might be in the background, but she's not on this one. So I might, if Sasha's up to it, make her be my right-hand woman because as everybody knows, I'm terrible at keeping track of the score. I got you. Thank you. Um, I'll figure it out. So that one should be a lot of fun. So that's tomorrow night, Saturday, uh, the October 2nd. Yay, we're in October by the time this drops. At 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, that's 5 Pacific, 7 Central, and 8 Eastern Time. So it should be a lot of fun. I have been enjoying these so, 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 so much. I think our Aliens one was our most popular one. It was also our closest with our teammates that we've ever had. So anyway, and then next week on the podcast for the episodes, we are going to be diving into paranormal ourselves. So we are going to be talking about Amityville, and then we're going to be talking about the very first horror movie I ever saw, Poltergeist. So Sasha and Susie are going to be on both Amityville and Poltergeist, and then Carla is going to be joining us for Poltergeist. So I am really excited to talk about Poltergeist. I'm excited to talk about both of these. But I'm really, really excited. And then the following week after that, I'm just going to briefly, sorry, everyone, go over this really quickly. We're going to be talking about Insidious and The Conjuring. And then after that, we're going to move into Slashers. And we're going to be talking about Scream, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th. And then we're going to wrap things up with an interview with Neil Frazier uh, from Neil Frazier Graphics. And then a discussion about us. So thank you so much, everyone. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter, and Stop Asian Hate. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? 
what do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.